This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Welcome to Rand. I want to. Uh, I'm Jim Thompson. I want to welcome all of our old friends here and several new ones. I want to uh, introduce Roy Dumaney, who will introduce the speaker. He is a member of the advisory board of our Center for Asia-Pacific Policy. But the most important thing is he's going to introduce our speaker right now. So, Roy. Uh, we're, we're really fortunate to have somebody uh, uh, as qualified as Krishna uh, here with us to explore the issues and the opportunities uh, of the Indian uh, economy and its growth uh, and the implications of the United States of this. Uh, uh, Krishna is a renowned uh, economist and teacher uh, and an excellent source uh, for us uh, to understand India's achievements uh, and to look into its future potential. And after having the pleasure and the privilege of uh, interacting with him uh, on a project relating to, to India, uh, it is with both respect uh, and pleasure uh, that I introduce uh, Dr. Uh, Kumar. Good evening, and uh, thank you for joining us uh, for this event uh, this, this evening. Um, I'm also very thankful to Rand for the chance to interact with this uh, elite audience today. Uh, the topic for today is India, India's economic rise, and in particular, uh, the implications of India's economic rise uh, for the U.S. In thinking about this topic, I've been influenced by uh, three projects we have done recently at RAND related to India. One of them is how public policy affects entrepreneurship in India. The other is a comparative uh, study on the Indian and Chinese education systems, and the third is the evolution of global poverty uh, in, the, in the future. I'm also extremely grateful to the Rosenfeld Program on Asian Development uh, at RAND uh, because much of the work that I do on Asia is made possible uh, through the generosity of the, of the Rosenfelds. So 30 years back, um, if the word uh, India was mentioned to you, what are some of the images that are likely to have come to your mind? Uh, maybe these uh, deliciously uh, unhealthy snacks, which I hope you had a chance to sample before coming here. Samosas. Spirituality uh, is never far uh, from mind when you mention India. In the 1940s, uh, the British writer Somerset Maugham wrote this novel called The Razor's Edge, which is about an American who returns from World War I. He has this job as a stockbroker ready for him, waiting for him in Chicago, but he feels a sense of emptiness. He gives it all up, and he wants to discover himself. And where does he go? He goes to India. And since then, you know, India has captured the imagination of many people as a source of spirituality, given the various religions and spiritual faiths that are practiced in India. And uh, when you mention India in the past, uh, the word poverty has not been too far behind because... Uh, mass poverty is one of the problems that India has had to grapple with uh, ever since independence. And all these have not disappeared, uh, fortunately in the case of samosas and unfortunately in the case of poverty, 
And even spirituality, one of the more recent movies, Eat, Pray, Love, you know, the, the character goes to India for, for spirituality. But now when you mention India, a few different images uh, pop up in the mind, I think. The first is uh, software companies. Okay? And this is not just um, multinationals that go to India to uh, establish software companies, but as shown in this picture, even uh, Indian, uh, Indian companies. Software uh, companies in India generate over $60 billion in revenue uh, for the GDP or the gross domestic product of India. And it might seem like a small number. It's under 6% of India's GDP. But the effect that this has had uh, to the psyche and the confidence of the Indian economy is incalculable. It first showed that India can be a world competitor in a high-technology sector, namely software. Much of it is exported, $50 billion. And uh, most of it, over 60% of it, is to the US. The other thing that goes hand in hand with this is this huge uh, scientific and technical labor force that exists in India, where 3.5 million graduates are added to this labor force annually, and a few hundred thousand, especially in the field of information technology and, and, and computer science. The other thing that you think of these days is you pick up the phone, complain about credit cards, and uh, your call gets routed to this person who's answering you very clearly with a made-up American-sounding name. And this person has also been trained to make small talk in baseball to make you feel comfortable. <laughs> and uh, these are uh, the call centers. And uh, the technical term for them is business process outsourcing, or BPO. And this particular sector accounts for more than $12 billion of the Indian GDP. The wages in India are going up. So uh, many other countries are now competing for this business. So Philippines, Malaysia, and Thailand are all you know, heavy BPO uh, destinations, but India still holds the top spot. And in fact, in a recent uh, ranking by the management consultancy firm A.T. Carney, India was ranked first uh, as a global services uh, location based on quality, availability of uh, labor, uh, and, and cost, and so on. And the other thing that pops in mind when you mention India is actually a country, which is China. Uh, the Indian politician Jairam Ramesh uh, coined this rather unfelicitous phrase called Chindia, which is supposed to be China plus India, because his point was whenever you mention one country, the other country is mentioned, and people sometimes think of them as a monolith, and often they compare themselves with uh, you know, uh, each other as well. So towards the end of the presentation, I'm going to talk a little bit about how the US can view uh, you know, this combination of, of China and India. So V.S. Naipaul is a writer of Indian origin who was born in Trinidad, but he's lived most of his life uh, in the UK. And he visited India some time back, and he wrote two books which were pretty scathing about India. One was called an area of darkness, and the other one was called The Wounded Civilization. The topic, you know, the titles pretty much tell it all. Um, and, and in particular, he was saying that India was using spirituality as some kind of a crutch, you know, using it to explain away, you know, inefficiencies and the, and the lack of progress. He went back a third time in the late uh, 80s, and he sort of sensed an air of emancipation, energy, and I think he, more than anybody else, foresaw uh, the revolution that was coming. In particular, he said that this was the beginning of a new wave for millions of Indians as part of India's growth. 
I don't know whether he was prescient or not, but in 1991, right after his travels, India faced one of the greatest economic crises it has ever faced. It was tearing bankruptcy in the face, and uh, India did not let a good crisis go waste. So uh, it, it introduced a, a whole slew of reforms which is responsible for where India is today. So a country that was essentially closed, which believed in what is called import substitution, became open. You know, it became a signatory to the World Trade Organization, or WTO. It lowered and simplified tariffs. Uh, many of its businesses were uh, state-owned. They all got privatized and deregulated. Uh, the marginal tax rate used to be 90% in India, and uh, you know, it became substantially lower after the reforms. And these reforms are still continuing. For example, the patent law reform was just enacted in, in 2005. So what did all this do to India? It took India from the so-called Hindu rate of growth in the 80s uh, to much higher growth rate. And I guess the thinking behind you know, dubbing this as Hindu growth rate is that Hindus are supposed to be pacific, con content people, so therefore they were happy with the 3% growth rate. Okay, but then when the liberalization happened, you know, the, the growth, growth increased. And you can see from this slide that this growth has been particularly high the last uh, uh, several years of this decade, you know, constantly averaging over 8%. And this is also uh, a good reason to not believe too much in the cultural or religious theory of economic development. It's not as if, you know, the Chinese gave up on Confucianism and Indians all became Protestants, and that's why these two countries uh, started growing. I mean, if you give the right economic incentives to people, they're going to respond, and that's what the Indian uh, policymakers and government did, and that's why you see the effect that you have. So what is the impact, you know, impact of all this on the United States, of all this rapid growth? I'm going to focus on these uh, you know, six topics, and this is by no means a complete list. So, for example, one of the uh, common influence that is mentioned is that you know, India has this huge middle class of over 50 to 60 million people growing uh, every year and therefore a good market for American companies. You know, that's well talked about, so I'm not going to focus on that here, but instead focus on a few things that might not have got enough attention. I'm going to talk a little bit about the perceptions that Americans and Indians have of each other, of Indo-US trade, of investment, of entrepreneurship, which I think particularly Americans can uh, relate to, the flow of talent between uh, India and the U.S., and finally this question of how does the U.S. deal with India and China as a monolith or, or, or separately. So let's start with the perceptions. The good news is that Americans and Indians like each other, and that's a good uh, uh, foundation or a starting point for relations uh, between the, the two countries. It, did, it was not always the case, um, because um, during the Cold War, India was seen to be firmly in the camp of the Soviet Union, even though it was a founding member of the non-aligned uh, movement and was a non-aligned country on paper. Likewise, Indians had their suspicions of uh, the U.S. as well. But if you look at this, in 2005, uh, a Pew Global Attitude survey found that Indians' view of the U.S. was most favorable among uh, seven, all, uh, 17 countries it was surveyed. It was over 70%. And the reason I mentioned that particular year is that, you know, the general approval rating for the U.S. was kind of low among other countries that year, but India was uh, way up there with 71%. And since then, consistently, India has uh, viewed uh, the U.S. and Americans favorably. For example, in the latest survey, over two-thirds uh, view uh, the U.S. favorably. 
And this has been reciprocated by the U.S. in a BBC World Service poll in 2010. The U.S. perceptions of India were nearly at the top, just one percentage point below uh, what the South Koreans thought of, thought of India. Next, let's look at uh, trade between uh, the U.S. And, and India. Before uh, economic reforms, this trade was hardly uh, existent. But if you look at this graph where on the x-axis you have the year and on the y-axis you have billions of dollars of trade, the red line is imports from India into the U.S. and the blue line is exports to India from the U.S., you can see it's been steadily uh, an upward path. The latest blip is because of the global recession where uh, trade throughout the world went down. But this is just you know, skimming the surface because look at how much uh, the U.S. exports to China. It's four times as much. How much does the U.S. import uh, from China? Ten times as much. So clearly this has a long way to go, but it is a good start. Likewise, if you look at the uh, position of uh, you know, U.S. as a trading uh, partner, uh, you know, China is, is ranked number two for the U.S., and India is way down the list at, at 14. If you look at it from the Indian point of view, India's largest trading partner is, is China, and the uh, U.S. usually uh, comes in at number two or number three. But, but here is a twist to the trade. The trade might not be very high in volume, but Indian trade is very similar to a developed country's trade rather than a developing country's trade. So in this picture on the x-axis, again, you have year, and on the y-axis, you have the share of total exports that's accounted for by services. And you can see that China's share is flat or even decreasing a little bit, but the Indian share of service exports has been steadily increasing. So this is a point that's going to be uh, recurring in this, in this presentation, that India looks a lot more like the U.S. than it does uh, a developing country. So therefore, uh, in those sectors where collaboration requires two countries that are pretty close to the knowledge frontier, I think India might have a, a comparative advantage. It also means that there are certain sectors, for example, in software production, that, that India can even be a competitor uh, to the U.S. So a recent um, uh, report from the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas had this to say that globally traded services tend to be knowledge intensive and India was pretty much at the top of the service, service hierarchy. So what can hurt um, all the progress that has been made? Clearly protection. Uh, outsourcing has become a favorite whipping boy of, of uh, foreign trade and, and uh, a call for protectionism. Uh, and, and clearly there are job losses because of trade, but it's not clear that you know, closing our borders is, is going to help in any way. And what is uh, likely to help? Uh, this tall uh, World Trade Organization talks, the so-called Doha round, uh, reviving that is clearly going to help the fortunes of, of all countries. And, and clearly all the countries involved would have to make concessions here. Next, let's uh, look at uh, investment. Again, uh, if you look at foreign direct investment inflow into uh, India, the U.S. ranks second. Technically, it ranks first because the country that ranks first, Mauritius, is viewed as a tax haven. So everybody wants to route their investment through Mauritius. But if you take that apart, the U.S. is the most important country for investment into, into India. And most of the action here has been in the last uh, few years. So if you look at... This graph on the x-axis, again, you have year, and the y-axis, billions of dollars of foreign direct investment inflow, and it's been steadily uh, upward for India. 
But here, too, India lags uh, uh, China by a factor of uh, half or one-third of the foreign direct investment that flows there. The Ernst & Young ranking of India's attractiveness as a foreign direct investment destination is four, and China ranks uh, top in that, in that list. But here, too, there's a difference in the type of investment that flows into India. It's services that attracts most of the inflows into India, about 20%, followed by sectors such as construction, housing, and so on. On the other hand, if you look at the accumulated investment, foreign direct investment into China, what is called the FDI stock, 60% of it is in manufacturing. So the types of investments going to the two countries are, are very different. And U.S. investment in India has gone beyond uh, outsourcing or people just you know, getting directions from here and writing millions of lines of software code. Uh, companies like uh, General Electric and Intel and Microsoft are now establishing what are called R&D centers where uh, you know, cutting-edge research and development uh, is, is, is being done. And you can see the result that you know, if you look at this light orange circle here, um, you know, as far as patents filed in India, and then you look at the darker orange circle, you can see the effect in just six or seven years, the patents filed in India have increased by a factor of three, and those granted in India have increased by a factor of ten. And this has led to uh, this phenomenon called uh, reverse innovation. So what ended up happening, for example, is that General Electric went to India, and India is a resource-scarce environment. Uh, you know, everything needs to be made uh, cheaply and should cost less, but at the same time it should function. So they produced a handheld electrocardiogram, or ECG, equipment for $1,000. Okay? The idea is that uh, this physician who's making home calls uh, house calls in rural India can take this with him. Uh, and interestingly, this ECG has now been uh, adopted uh, in the U.S., and it is making uh, its presence felt in the U.S. And this is what is called reverse innovation, that you innovate in, in, in a resource-scarce uh, country, but it, it comes back and helps a developed country. And to be fair, this is happening in China as well. I don't want to present this as a, as a, a pure India thing. But for the U.S. firms, this reverse innovation is not just going to be a luxury. I'm going to argue that it is a necessity. Okay, so this Tata Nano, which has got a lot of uh, world press, is priced at $2,200. And if they ever start exporting this, and if we want to compete with, with that, you know, we need to have much more of this, of this reverse uh, innovation. Talking about innovation, one of the brightest um, uh, sectors in India right now is the biotech pharmaceutical sector. And here I think the synergies between U.S. and India have just started making an appearance and it's going to grow tremendously. So if there's one sector where you want to invest your money in in India, it probably should be the biotech pharmaceutical sector. So what is happening here is that if you think of the U.S. as having what economists might call a comparative advantage in knowledge production, the basic knowledge produced in the U.S. research institutes and universities can com combine with the Indian uh, lower-cost you know, pharmaceutical uh, production. And uh, together, you might have the right formula with, because of that. This is a picture from uh, one of uh, India's leading pharmaceutical company called Biocon. And India signed this global patent loss in 2005 so because of that, you know, U.S. and other pharmaceuticals feel that their intellectual property is now going to be safe in India. 
So many of them are tying up with pharmaceutical companies to uh, produce uh, uh, drugs uh, in a much more cost-effective way. And particularly so when it comes to conducting global clinical trials. I mean, India is going to have 15% of the clinical trials uh, in the world by, by 2011. So what can hurt here? Well, you know, Indian retail, which is a $300 billion sector, the Indian government still has closed it to foreign direct investment. You can have a single brand uh, retail store, but the kind of multi-brand uh, retailing that we are used to here, like Walmart and so on, is still not allowed in India. And the putative reason is to protect these mom-and-pop uh, stores that are shown here, but I think the side effect might be to protect the larger Indian retail firms that are already uh, in, in business. India by itself is also now investing outside. Um, and one of the things where I think we can expect to see more action, because you know, we're not seeing it much yet, is Indians investing in American companies, buying American companies, and so on. So for example, if you take the UK, India is the second highest foreign employer in the UK. Um, we were talking about uh, Ratan Tata some time back, and he and many others have invested heavily uh, in the UK. And the, and the first employer, foreign employer in the UK is, of course, the US. Okay, so uh, let's uh, move next to the sort of unbalanced growth you see in India. There's no one India. There are multiple Indias. So if you look at the you know, richest uh, people in the world in the Forbes uh, list... Number four and number five are Mukesh Ambani and Lakshmi Mittal, who are Indians. Okay? And there are many more uh, billionaires lower down in the list as well. But over a third of Indians live under $1 a day. Um, and here is another way of looking at it. If you look at the top panel, the purple part of this pie chart is the percentage of the labor force that is involved in agriculture, which is 60%. But if you look at the value that they add to the GDP, which is the uh, bottom panel, they add 18%. So essentially, 60% of the labor force adds only 20% of uh, GDP and gets to uh, keep only, only that much. So clearly, this unbalanced growth and the existence of poverty with these great riches is, is a problem for India. So... Inclusive growth has become the mantra now uh, in Indian policy circles, and there are many ways of achieving this. Infrastructure, education, health, and so on can clearly help eradicate poverty as well as create growth. But I want to talk a little bit about one um, way of uh, creating this inclusive growth that there's not been much attention to, which is entrepreneurship. Why entrepreneurship by its very nature... Um, is, you know, gives you a creative approach to deal with constraints. So even, you know, when all these other sectors are developing, entrepreneurs can, in a very creative way, work around them. So entrepreneurship is a here and now solution to the inclusive growth problem that India faces. And it spans the entire socioeconomic spectrum. It can go all the way from village dwellers to venture capitalists. And, and we did recently uh, some study on this uh, with the Indian School of Business, and our overall conclusion is that you don't need to give any special subsidy to small enterprises and entrepreneurs. Just having a good business environment is going to help, uh, you know, help uh, the, the poor people and, and uh, entrepreneurs. So why should the U.S. care about this? Well, first of all, if you, know, you have unbalanced growth, you know, people are going to protest and the reforms could be rolled back. And all the gains that I now talked about, investment and trade and so on, can be rolled back. The other thing is, uh, 
there's this institute in the UK called the Legardum Institute, and they actually sponsored this entrepreneurship research I just mentioned. They did a survey, and they found that Indian entrepreneurs were very much like American entrepreneurs. They want to make money. They want to be their own boss. But the thing that drives them is that they want to make a difference. So, um, you know, Indians really look up to American entrepreneurs, and one of the reasons they have such a favorable opinion of the U.S. is that they think entrepreneurship thrives uh, very much, uh, very much in the in the U.S. So clearly, this is something where um, uh, you know U.S. and India can uh, can do a lot together. So what can help here? India needs to reform its its business environment. It now takes uh, you know. 30 days and more than 10 procedures to start a business in, in India compared to Singapore where it just takes a couple of days. So India has a long way to go uh, towards improving its business environment. And if you think about it, uh, a richer person, a bigger person can work around all this through legal or illegal means, but it's really the poorer person who can start a business much faster if you make it that much easier, which is why I claim that you know, entrepreneurship can help inclusion and, and growth. Let's then talk about uh, this brain circulation, uh, which is a buzzword that has replaced brain drain. Uh, 30% of the world's software engineers are, are Indian. Uh, I don't know whether it is something in the Ganges, but, uh, but I think it is more an economic incentive. Again, the rate of return to an education, a degree in computer science is very high, so a lot of people are getting uh, software uh, engineering degrees. A third of engineers in Silicon Valley are of Indian descent. Over 15% of Indian enterprises in the last 25 years have been started by Indians in Silicon Valley. And many of these uh, Indian uh, uh, entrepreneurs who are now based in the U.S. have gone back and seeded uh, uh, entrepreneurial ventures in, uh, in India. Annalise Saxanian of uh, UC Berkeley calls these people the new Argonauts, the people who go back and, and, and create an entrepreneurial revolution. The UK has this program called the Global Entrepreneur uh, Program, which is meant to be a business accelerator. They scout for talent from around the world and try to help them to locate in the UK. Um, so in general, there's this perception among Indian entrepreneurs that the UK is a better place to locate than the US. And in fact, in the last few weeks, if anything, India has threatened a World Trade Organization complaint over a U.S. bill that would increase visa fees, especially in the, in the H-1B visas, which uh, Indian companies uh, use a lot. So in general, there's been a perception now that immigration to the U.S. is increasingly difficult, and so this is one challenge that now faces this uh, you know, brain circulation. Finally, let's talk about India and, and, and China, how the U.S. should view First, let's look at India and China. On this graph, on the x-axis, I again have year. And on the y-axis, I have gross domestic product or GDP. But this is adjusted for what is called purchasing power parity or PPP. This basically says that a dollar is not going to get you a haircut in the US, even a bad one. But uh, you can use that to get a haircut in India and China where things are cheaper. So once you make this adjustment, this light blue line here is the US. Uh, the pink line is Japan, and this dark blue line is China plus India, and you can see the rapid growth uh, in, in income that is happening between these two countries. And, you know, in one of our other projects, we find that in 40, 50 years, poverty is not going to be a big problem in, in either of these countries. 
I have uh, written here as prosperity regained because in 1800, China and India together accounted for 50% of the world's GDP and had the highest per capita GDP. But they missed out on the Industrial Revolution, but they seem to be catching up in, in quite a hurry. So the, the fact that China and India are growing together, so many people are getting out of poverty, is good news for the entire world. But I still think that China and India are going to be different beasts. Politically, I don't think they're going to become uh, alike uh, each other uh, anytime soon. As I mentioned, India is, is a heavily service-based economy. China is a manufacturing-based economy. Uh, in the uh, education research we did, we characterized India as having a deep educational policy, whereas China is a wide one because China, of, of India's focus on higher education and China's focus on, on basic education. People now say that China might uh, become big before it becomes rich, and you can alter that a little bit and say India might become a knowledge economy before it becomes rich. Here are some comparisons between uh, India and China. Um, many of these are already known, so in the interest of time, let me skip this. The one thing that I want to point out here is that between India and China, there's always like a two percentage point uh, uh, gap in, in the growth rate. And, and many explanations have been put forward. One uh, is the idea that, oh, Indians prefer to be a chaotic democracy, don't want, want to lose their freedom, so they don't mind uh, a two percentage point lower growth. Chaotic democracy is supposed to be a step up from the greatest functioning anarchy, which is the way uh, John Kenneth Galbraith characterized India. But to a lot of other people, uh, they're worried that democracy might become the new crutch, that people might explain away inefficiency of the government and, and other sectors by claiming to be a democracy. So uh, the economist Jagdish Bhagwati did some calculation, and he found that improvement in infrastructure can increase India's growth by uh, two percentage points. Few others blame governance. The joke is that um, India grows when the government sleeps at night. Um, I think that's a little bit uh, too harsh because the Indian government has enacted uh, sufficient policy reforms, but clearly there is this perception out there that um, the government is not keeping pace with the aspirations of the private sector and holding the private sector behind. So in, in, uh, in conclusion, um, I think the, uh, there are going to be social, cultural, and religious differences between India, but the, these are completely dwarfed by the gains that are achievable by searching for win-win uh, solutions between the uh, two countries. Because one of the main things that happened in 91 was not just the particular policies that were put in place, but a change in the mindset of the Indian policymaker. They suddenly realized that public policy need not be made on the principle of altruism, but on the basis of you know win-win situation where everybody can gain. And this is the uh, this, this particular pragmatic outlook is, I think, what has uh, made India uh, and Indian public policy very attractive to the Indian private sector as well as uh, to, the, to the rest of the world. So thank you, and I'd be very happy to uh, listen to your comments and answer any questions you might have at this, at this point. We have a question in front. Uh, two questions, actually. A quick one. What percentage of Indian GDP is export? Um, you know, 
imports plus exports over GDP is a number that I uh, remember more readily, and it's about 50 to 50 percent, I would think, roughly, yeah. or, or, which is much smaller than what China has. As a follow-up, uh, if uh, the developed world were to sink back into the, the, the infamous double dip or something worse, how would that impact India? You know, it could, it could have both an impact on India, and India might have an impact as well. Okay, so first, the impact on India um, is that uh, India has started moving lockstep with the developed world when it comes to recessions, at least initially. Uh, so this recession did have an impact on India as it did on China. It's just that both of them emerged out of that recession pretty fast. Okay, so there's going to be some effect on, say, software exports, for example. But the flip side of this is that um, India consumes quite a lot. 60% of Indian GDP is in consumption. So if the American consumer is taking a wait-and-see attitude, uh, consumers in India and China and the rest of the developing world might actually step up to consume some of the goods that are made here. So, you know, these these are the impacts I, I see right away. More question right here. A little um, at variance from the thrust of your talk, but I like your comment on Fareed Zachariah's program, GPS, this past Sunday. They were talking about the impact on the United States of China's rise to number two. Mm -hmm. But you've sort of added a lot because you have to really add in India. And two uh, comments that the both people made was the impact on the United States, in addition to being economic, is also social. Number one, the United States is becoming more xenophobic, anti-immigration, and number two, it's becoming more intolerant. I'm wondering if you have a comment on that, if you feel it's germane to India. Um, You know, I I must profess this by saying I'm I'm not an expert in this this area, but, you know, I've always viewed globalization as, as breaking down barriers. Um, I, I really think that this question even comes up because we are in a recession. If we were also growing at you know three four percent a year, which is the rate at which a developed country should be growing, I think this question uh, is is not likely to happen. In my own travels and my own research, what I find is that people understand each other better now. And, and let me you know, f- for example, use India and China uh, 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 you know as, as 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 a case in point. Indian and Chinese trade was non-existent about 10 years back. Now there's like a total trade of about you know, $60 billion between these two countries. And a lot of people argue this is what is keeping you know, India and China uh, from thinking more about trade than about you know, uh, wars and border issues and so on, even though you know, it keeps propping up every now and then. So I really think that economics is, is uh, a win-win situation. It's wrong to think of economics as a zero-sum situation. So I really do think that once we get out of the recession and the recession is not on the top of our minds, uh, global trade and and globalization and the rise of India and China are going to be seen as complementary rather than as substitutes, and it's only going to help the cause of of, uh, better understanding. All right, we have a question in the back. Hi. Um, You didn't touch on a country that I think is quite important to India, and that's Pakistan. And I'm wondering how you think this might complicate the relationship between India and China in as much as Pakistan and China have for many, many years had a very, very close 
relationship militarily and economically, and uh, how this might impact your relationship with, uh, with China. And one other question, you had mentioned that there were representatives from Canada in the audience. I have to be from Canada. And you didn't touch on the relationship between India and Canada, or Indian investment in Canada, but you did on the UK, so I'd like to hear you comment on that, too. Both are great questions, and the first one, I think you're intent on getting me in trouble. Um, <laughs> again, I must profess by saying I'm not, I'm not an expert in this, but I, I, I continue to think that even uh, with Pakistan, as I was answering earlier, if India and Pakistan trade more, they would be less interested in, in, in fighting with each other. So clearly, um, you know, there is this perception in India that China is... Uh, uh, you know, becoming more influential in South Asia, and some people uh, uh, blame India for that, uh, saying that India should have been more active in cultivating its its neighbors, and China is filling a vacuum. But but again, you know, uh, since it's not my area of expertise, I don't want to stray too much into that into that area, other than making this constructive suggestion that if there is two-way investment flow between India and China and two-way trade flow, that it can only help the cause of, of, of peace. As far as Canada goes, I agree. I, you know, it's an excellent point. I haven't touched it mainly because of lack of time and, and, and given the topic. Canada, like the UK, is a very attractive destination for Indian entrepreneurs. In fact, uh, I didn't mention this study, but I worked with a couple of uh, people at, at RAN looking at the success of Indian entrepreneurs in Canada, uh, the U.S., and the U.K., and what we find is that Canada has a, a very nice way of screening uh, immigrants, you know, by way of skill, by way of entrepreneurial uh, spirit, and uh, Indian entrepreneurs are doing extremely well, well in Canada. Okay, and, and, and clearly there is some of this new argonaut, uh, you know, seeding of entrepreneurship in India going from there as well. So I, I think it's an important... A country to talk about. It's just that, you know, given the limitation of time and topic, I had to focus on the... I have a question US. here in the back. Uh, hey, this is a uh, fairly general question, so I have to apologize Thank about you. that. Uh, one of the things that intrigues me about India is the extreme poor, the poor population in India, uh, as distinct from most other developed nations, you see that the rural poor are much better organized and much better politically connected than the urban poor, and that as you see an increased migration of uh, extremely poor individuals from uh, the countryside into the cities, that that dynamic is uh, well at least going to be magnified. And I'm wondering if you can comment on that, if you see that as a potential threat, and really how true of the uh, observation that is. Um, you know, th that's a good point, but you know. I'm not sure whether the um, people who live in Darvi, in, in, which is a you know, large slum in, in Bombay, made famous by the movie Slumdog Millionaire, uh, is, is that less organized than, uh, the, uh, than the rural poor? I think you know, part of the problem that you're talking about might be that there is still a lot of migration that's happening from the villages to the cities, and the new entrants have not had uh, time to politically organize. So clearly there, uh, you know, I, I, I see your point, but for like established slums, if you will, like, like Darby, they are pretty well organized politically. And I think the, the reason, you know, you pointed out the difference between there and many other countries is that, um, you know, votes do count in, in India. And these 
people do have some power through the ballot box, which again allows them to be uh, much more, much more active, active politically. We'll go up front. The murder of the uh, uh, rise of the uh, Indian economy was uh, the high-tech technology. And that was possible because India had a, a very good education system for the elite. The right. English established a, tr uh, a very good system. Right. To, co to continue that, that would be very difficult because 80% of the Indian population has no education system. That's right. How are you going to do um, approach that? that? That's an excellent uh, question. One we have thought about quite a bit, uh, quite a bit at RAND. So, so thanks for uh, asking that question. Uh, the funny thing is that um, in the 80s, the World Bank took India to task for focusing too much on higher education. Um, you know, at the expense of, of uh, you know, primary and secondary education, India was spending a greater fraction of its education budget on higher education than it was doing on basic education. Now people are complaining um, that there is a big skill gap and, uh, you know, the, the college graduates uh, are not up to par in the newer colleges that are emerging. So clearly this, this gap is important. So first, even for people who go through the... Uh, primary and secondary education system, quality college education has become a bottleneck. But I think your point went beyond that, and which is a favorite topic of mine. You know, India now boasts of you know close to 100% of primary enrollment rate. I mean, the quality of education is still suspect, but at least on paper it gets close to 100% of primary enrollment rate. But this helps the the children who are being born today. Um, the literacy rate in India is only about 50% or so. What do we do with this huge stock, if you will, of, of labor force that exists? And I think the way out of that is serious uh, uh, education for the adults. Uh, and, you know, we don't need to pull them into the classroom and teach them Plato and Aristotle, but, you know, many of these people have not even seen electricity. So, you know, for them to be even able to uh, be taught how machines work, what is electricity, would make uh, a, a, a big difference. But in parallel with that, India needs to encourage its lower and manufacturing sector as well, because where are you going to put all these trained people? The people from college uh, will go to the software companies, but this vast majority of the people that you're talking about have to be accommodated in the lower and manufacturing. So these two things have to happen at the same time. Otherwise, you're going to have the manufacturing sector with nobody to hire, or you're going to have these trained people nowhere to go. It, it's a very difficult problem, but something that we have talked about quite a bit. Uh, at Ryan. I have a Thank question you. here to the side. In the context of uh, socioeconomic development in India, would you comment on the direction of the development, rather, of the middle class and redistribution of wealth? Um, so the uh, Indian middle class, as I mentioned, there was a McKinsey study which found that there are 50 million uh, strong, um, and they have uh, this purchasing power parity adjusted per capita income of, of about $45,000, $50,000 a year. So they are a serious market uh, in about 50 to 20 years. I mean, you have to always treat projections with a grain of salt. They project, you know, like 300, 400 million people are going to be in the middle class, which is greater than the population of the U.S., right? So, so clearly this, this middle class is, is, is growing. Um, now, you know, they are a, they are a, ripe, a ripe market for the U.S. and also for Indian companies. I mean, you know, people say that, 
you know, Indian population is growing, but so is Indian production that is catering uh, to, this, uh, to this population. As far as redistribution goes, um, you know, India has, uh, in the Indian policymaker has, um, you know, seen a change in attitude. And I, I cannot do anything more than quote uh, Narayana Murthy. He was the, one of the founders of, of um, you know, Infosys, the company that I showed in, in my slide. And he really said that we are all children of a different generation. That is he and, and the policymakers who he dealt with. And uh, they all believed that redistribution was the way to eradicate poverty. But he claims that you cannot eradicate poverty with redistribution. You have to eradicate poverty with generation of new wealth. And he said that that was his motivation for starting the company and making it one of the largest companies in the world. So it is true that you know, every now and then you will see um, redistributive policies like the National uh, Employment uh, Program and so on, which guarantees you know, 100 days of employment and so on. But by and large, the um, government policy has been oriented towards uh, wealth generation rather than wealth redistribution. The thing here, though, and this is the point I was trying to touch on in this inclusive growth, it is not that easy for the person on the street to go and start a company. So if India truly believes that you know, it's going to eradicate poverty through wealth generation, it should give the poor person on the street the ability to generate that wealth you know, through human capital and through a good business environment. So until that happens, you know, it, you know, the, the promises are not going to be realized. Question in the back. You know, if you, in listening to your talk, you could almost summarize it perhaps by saying very simplistically that economic development and commerce cures all. Is there really historical, I mean, taking the historical view of this issue, is there support for that in the Indian-Chinese uh, situation, uh, setting? Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. Part of it is my bias as an economist. <laughs> um, you know, economists are constantly being accused of economic imperialism, which is that basically any social science, any uh, issue can be uh, addressed using uh, economics. So I, I should first, uh, you know, say that, that, you know, I didn't really mean to imply that. There are clearly strategic issues between, you know, the, the question came up between India and Pakistan, India and China, uh, as well as between U.S. And, and all these other countries. But clearly, um, economic development does give people uh, a, a stake. You know, there's enough uh, um, uh, research that's been done on conflicts and development, okay? And uh, people argue that poverty leads to conflict, and then conflict in turn leads to poverty. So clearly, one way out of conflict uh, Paul Collier and many others have written um, a, a lot about this, is to give people a stake to, you know, have them something to do. You know, if you look at the recruits uh, for, so, so the, you know, we were talking about, um, uh, you know, uh, non-economic issues. So one of the biggest challenges India faces are the Maoist rebels called the Naxalites. Uh, the prime minister is on record saying it's one of India's uh, greatest, uh, greatest challenges. And if you see who their constituency is, it is mainly people who have been left out of this growth. Okay? So, so clearly, uh, addressing their needs would address the uh, conflict issue. I have a question in the front by Mrs. Mueller Chernoff. Um, would you be so kind to comment on the issue of uh, cap and trade, which is uh, very, very hot in D.C.? 
uh, while both India and China have declared they're not coming on board because they're developing countries. Do you see any impact either way on that? Um, yes. I mean, um, you know, the Indian and Chinese point of view is that, you know, to put it very simplistically, you've polluted what you want, you've grown, you've become developed, so now clean air is like a luxury good, you want it, but we are poor countries for us, growth is paramount, so therefore, you know, uh, we don't want it, right? I mean, and that is, uh, that is a simplistic view, and I think that, um, you know, the gap can be bridged by a move somewhere uh, to the middle. I really think that, you know, China is making a lot of investment in green technology, and uh, India, it's a land of sunshine. I mean, they should be moving to solar technology by the day. And in fact, I just had one of my students from India mail me yesterday saying that, you know, one of the ventures he was going to start is a solar-powered portable lamp that can be taken to rural India where there's no electricity, right? Uh, which would fill a, you know, wonderful uh, niche and a, and a need in India. So, yeah, so clearly, you know, the, the uh, gap has to be bridged somewhere in between. The growth aspirations of these countries cannot be neglected, but there's no reason for these countries to make the same mistake everybody else did. Part of their contention is that if you want us to use the latest technology, you should give it to us at lower cost, and maybe some of that needs to be done. But um, from an Indian and Chinese point of view, I mean, if you build green cars, people are going to buy. Maybe the next generation of nano should be an electric nano you know, only slightly more expensive than that. Think about uh, how much they can export it and, and generate revenues. Question in the back. Hi. I was wondering if you could comment on the dynamics of capital formation in India over the past 50 years, uh, whether or not it's increased, uh, people's entrepreneurs' access to capital has increased, and also, relatedly, maybe, um, the money supply. Uh, what has happened to the money supply over the past 50 years? Right. So let's talk about the uh, you know, real capital accumulation. I, I, I always tell my students that whenever possible, get money out of the picture because nobody can understand money in nominal terms. So just let's think in real terms. Clearly, there's been an accelerated uh, capital accumulation in India over the last uh, few decades. Now, it's not that India did not believe in saving earlier on because you know, they were advised, like many developing countries, that saving is the way to uh, grow. But then uh, this MIT economist Robert Solo taught us all that you know, by increasing the saving rate, you're not going to grow because you're going to run into that famous uh, dismal science aspect of economics, namely diminishing returns. So the way you really grow is through productivity, through improvement in technology. So the capital accumulation that you're seeing in India right now is of the right kind. It's not you know, saving for the sake of saving, but it's the productivity increase that is increasing capital accumulation. India has a reasonably well-developed banking sector. Um, for my liking, it's a little bit too over-regulated. So, you know, they were gloating when the banking system everywhere failed, saying that, um, you know, we have not failed because we have been regulated. But then if you never leave your home, you'll never be run, out by a, run over by a car. That doesn't mean that you should never leave your home. So clearly, you know, the financial sector in India has to be uh, liberalized and deregulated a lot more. But it is a pretty stable and good system. The more uh, interesting development in the last decade or so is the, uh, you know, you were talking about savings, entrepreneurial access to, to finance, is at the lower end, the so-called microfinance revolution and the micro-entrepreneurial revolution, where people can get smaller loans has increased to the point where it's no longer just, you know, self-help associations. Big banks, like, for example, ICICI is a 
is the largest private bank in India, has entered this, uh, entered this business as well. So clearly, the, the capital accumulation has increased. Was, it, was there another point to your question, or did I? Oh, the, the money supply. Yeah, I'm sorry. The money supply, um, it, it's a good point because Indian inflation right now is on the higher side. I think some of the monetary easing... So, so here is the problem with monetary easing. People say that you increase the money supply, decrease the interest rate, the economy grows. If you take the U.S., where is all this money accumulating? You know, it is all accumulating in banks as excess reserves. It's like you have this dam, all this uh, money is accumulating when the economy starts improving and the dam opens, all this liquidity is going to flood and it's going to increase inflation. And I think you've already started seeing that in India. India has double-digit inflations and clearly money supply is a big problem. In fact, India has been going the other way. It's been increasing um, some of the interest rates to, to cool down the liquidity. All right, we have time for one final question. Could you touch a little bit on demography? It said in China that they've got to get rich before they get old. It strikes me that India is still a very young country and yes. how demography is going to affect economic growth. Excellent question. Over 50% of Indian population is under 25, and I think the figure for under 35 is something like 60-odd. So clearly, and the comparable figures are much lower for China. So clearly India is a very a young nation, and a lot of people who are bullish on India are bullish for this reason, that you know, there's going to be this huge young uh, labor force that is available. It's often called the demographic dividend. Uh, I'm willing to buy that up to some point, uh, but um, you know, if you have this huge labor force, but it is not educated and it cannot participate in this you know, modern, fast-growing economy, I don't think you're going to have uh, a demographic dividend, you're going to have a youth tsunami. So, uh, you know, these people are going to get really uh, upset and you're going to have all the kinds of protests, protests that I uh, talked about. So, yes, it has a potential for being very beneficial uh, for India and it's a comparative advantage. But, you know, India is the uh, crucial crossroads of seeing whether it can provide better education and health care for these people to tap their talents. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.